right, tonight we're going to be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes together, the book of Ecclesiastes, continue our march through the books of the Bible, going to be reading from the very last, second to last verse of the book, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, but I'd invite you to keep your Bible open, we'll do some surfing through it together. Um, be jumping around a little bit, at least for the first half anyway. We're going to read Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, a verse that sort of encapsulates the message, I guess in this case, the conclusion of this book. This is what God's Word says, Now all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Let's pray together. Lord God, we look forward to opening up your word together tonight. We look forward to studying it together. Father, we ask that you would bless our study of it. Please be with me as I uh, preach that I might do this well and to your name's honor and glory and in a spirit-filled manner. Uh, Be with us as we listen. Uh, May we be able to understand Uh, some of what you are saying to us in this book. And Lord, above all, we pray that you would help us to see our Lord Jesus Christ in it. It's in his name we pray. Amen. There's a man who lost his wedding ring, and uh, he was desperate to find it. So he called a few of his friends to help him look for it. When his friends showed up at his house, they found this man on his hands and knees out in the front yard. They asked they ask him, is that, is that where you think you lost it? The man says, no, I lost it in the house. They then ask him, why in the world are you looking for it out in the yard then? He answers, because the light is better out here. We know that's sheer foolishness, isn't it? That's sheer foolishness. Why would you look for something where it's not going to be found? Of course, the fact is, people do this every day, don't they? They look for meaning, and they look for purpose in all the wrong places. We look for it in money, in happiness, in work, in relationships, and so on. The book of Ecclesiastes exposes this foolishness, exposes this futility of our searching for meaning and purpose and the temporary things of this world. And it it calls us to look beyond this world to something greater, to something more powerful, to something eternal. We might say, in light of the language in this book, it exposes the folly of of looking for meaning and purpose in things that are under the sun and calls us instead to look for meaning above the sun, beyond the sun, or maybe even in the sun, if we want to go that route. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, this book is called Kohelet. Kohelet. Kohelet is the Hebrew word that the NIV translates in verse 1 as teacher. Right? You can see that, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1, the words of the 
teacher. That word teacher comes from the Hebrew word kohelet. The ESV um, translates that word as preacher. The word literally means leader of the assembly. So it could be teacher, it could be preacher, whatever. Now, the Septuagint, big word, the Septuagint, uh, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, Jesus and Paul probably would have been familiar with the Septuagint in their day. They would have had the, the Hebrew Old Testament translated into Greek, just as we have the Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament translated into English, all right? But the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And in the Septuagint, the Hebrew word kohelet is translated ecclesiastu. Ecclesiastu, and of course that's where our English word ecclesiastes comes from. Ecclesiastes is essentially the Greek word for teacher or preacher um, or, or the leader of an assembly of some sort. So if you wonder where that strange name Ecclesiastes comes from, uh, there you go. Now, who is this teacher or this preacher? We actually don't know for sure. We know he's a descendant of David because we see that in verse 1. He's, the, he's, a, he's a son of David, but son doesn't necessarily mean immediate son. It could be a grandson or a great-grandson or so on and so forth. We know he was a king in Jerusalem as well, so that limits the possibilities a little more. Many do believe that Solomon is the teacher, is the writer of Ecclesiastes. Uh, that could very well be. There's a good argument to be made from some of the things said in this book that, in fact, it is Solomon. We hear about his wealth and his wisdom and those things which were all characteristic of Solomon, but not everyone's convinced it's Solomon, and there's good arguments on the other side that this book was written by someone after Solomon. There's, there's language in it that is not very Solomon-like or maybe that applies better to a later date after Solomon. So it could be any number of the kings of Judah. To be honest with you, it doesn't really matter uh, who wrote it. It doesn't change the message of the book. I don't think we need to know who wrote it to understand it. Now, as you read this book, you're going to notice that there are some words and there are some phrases that are repeated over and over again. Uh, if you're using an NIV Bible, you will see in verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2, the words meaningless, right? Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Uh, if you're using an English Standard Version or a New King James Version, you're going to see the word vanity there. It'll say vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. It's all vanity. All right? But the Hebrew word behind each of these words is hebel. Hebel. That word hebel occurs 38 times uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's really a key term for understanding the book. Uh, now, this is one of those Hebrew words, and we come across these from time to time. This is one of those Hebrew words that is difficult to translate into English. It's hard to capture, really, the fullness of its, of its meaning, and that's why you see different translations using different words. They're each trying to, you know, put their hand in the ring of giving it the best meaning possible. Uh, but the word literally means wisp of air or, or vapor. It literally means a wisp of air or a, or a vapor. And some take hold of that idea of emptiness in a vapor, and that's why they translate the word as vanity. 
others see in it the idea of meaninglessness, like the NIV, and therefore they translate it as meaningless. But actually, neither of these really captures the, the full essence of the Hebrew word. And most see in this word um, the idea that the, the teacher here, when he uses it, he's, he has in mind the passing nature of things, the fleeting nature of things, the unsubstantial nature of things, and maybe most of all, the frustrating nature of things. And we'll kind of come back to that whole concept of frustrating. But, but he looks at it, and there's just this frustrating quality about everything he sees, and he's just, he's just sort of frustrated. The other phrase that's used often in the book is the phrase, under the sun. Okay, this phrase occurs 28 times in the book, and it refers simply to life under the sun. And, and we might even get more specific than that, life in this broken and sin-filled world. There are some who have said, and I think this is helpful, that the book of Ecclesiastes is a commentary on Genesis three seventeen through 19. Genesis three seventeen through 19 is where God sort of um, declares that the earth and that life will be subject to frustration as a result of Adam and Eve's fall into sin. And the book of Ecclesiastes kind of bemoans this frustrating nature of things, which is a consequence of the fall. So again, it could be read sort of as, an ecclesi- as a commentary on Genesis three seventeen through 19. Now, normally in these evening services, I, I outline the book for you, and we walk through it together. Uh, I don't really want to do that so much tonight. Actually, maybe we can, we can walk through it briefly. The book's not easy to outline at all, um, but you can get an idea of what's going on if you just look at the, look at the headings there. Um, I do want to point out that first section, chapter 1, 1 through 11. Uh, here we're really introduced to the book. We read about who these words are. They're the words of the teacher. We read about who he is, a son of David, a king of Jerusalem. Uh, in verse 2, the teacher right off the bat declares everything to be meaningless or vanity. And then verses 3 and 4 really, really get at the problem that he's trying to work out in the book. There we read, what does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. That's really the the question that is at the core of this book, the struggle that the teacher is trying to work out before our very eyes. Essentially, he's saying, what's it all for? Days come and days go. Generations come and generations go. Time marches on. The sun rises. The sun sets. It's back to where it rises. Time marches on, right? There's nothing new and so on. What's it all for? Is it for anything? Is it for anything at all? But he spends the book just wrestling with this, and then he goes on to indicate how, how wisdom is meaningless. You can see that starting at verse 12 if you have the NIV. And then chapter 2, how pleasures are meaningless. And he gets in there how, how riches are meaningless, and, and, and on and on he goes. It's all, it's all meaningless. It's all in vain. And you can, again, you can go through and you can sort of read the headings and get an idea of 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 the layout and the structure of the book. It is, like I said, hard to outline. It kind of jumps around. It's actually a fairly difficult book to read. But then if you might go to the very last chapter, 
uh, chapter 12, verse 13, we get what it ends up being the logical conclusion of, of the teachers wrestling throughout the book, right? Ecclesiastes 12, 13, this is what we read. He says, now that all has been heard, and that's talking about everything he's just said, right up to this point, now that all has been heard, here's the conclusion of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments. That's, that's the conclusion. That's where this book takes us, okay? That there is much in life that we don't understand, much in life that is confusing, that is beyond our ability to grasp, much that even seems sometimes meaningless and in vain, and, and much that actually is also meaningless and in vain, but our duty is to fear God and to keep his commandments, okay? Even if life doesn't make sense, with this we can't go wrong. That's kind of where the teacher ends up. Now, from here, I just want to set before you some of the primary themes, okay? Let me give you, give you four of the primary themes of the book of Ecclesiastes. The first one is simply the frustrating and perplexing nature of life, okay? That's the first main theme of this book, the frustrating and perplexing nature of life. Like the book of Job uh, before it, The book of Ecclesiastes will not allow God's people to adopt a simplistic or optimistic or naive view of life. Okay, the book of Ecclesiastes is real in this. Life is is messy. Life isn't always easy to understand. Life isn't always easy to make sense of. Trusting in God does not mean that all your problems are just going to magically go away. It doesn't mean you won't suffer. It certainly doesn't mean you won't die. In fact, according to the book of Ecclesiastes, knowing the Lord actually can make life more confusing. This is chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Listen to what he says, I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on me. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing his heart desires. But God does not enable him to enjoy them, and a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. So he's like, he's like looking at these people who've been giving everything, and something happens. When I read this, I think of, you hear these stories, guys, they turn, they turn 65, 66, they retire, they've got their cottage by the lake, right, they've got their, their 401k is healthy, and they're going to sail off into the sunset with their wife, and then two days later, they die of a heart attack, right, we've heard those stories, that's kind of what I picture right here, and we think, God, why? God, and, even, and especially if it's, a, if it's a believer, right, God, Why? What, what, what's going on? I mean, a relationship with God almost adds to the distress. It adds to the confusion. Right? Knowing the Lord makes, makes tragedy in times like those more perplexing. The book of Ecclesiastes acknowledges this. Life is not neat and tidy and easy to understand. No, it is often messy and confusing and perplexing and frustrating, just as God said it would be in Genesis 3 after the fall into sin. The righteous do not always prosper. The wicked don't always suffer. In fact, quite often it's the other way around. It doesn't make sense to our finite minds. But we shouldn't say God never told us it would. It's right here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Sometimes it all to us seems meaningless. Sometimes it all seems in vain. Sometimes it all doesn't seem like it's worth it. A second theme is that of finding joy and satisfaction in life. You'll notice when you read this that the teacher 
he kind of has this weird thing going on because it, sometimes he's like seems completely fatalistic, right? Like just whatever will be will be, and we're all going to die, and that's that is what it is, right? He sort of has that mentality. Other times he's he's sort of positive, and and this is this is that second theme. It's a finding joy and satisfaction in life. Okay, the teacher the teacher understands, and you you'll see this as you read the book. He understands that life is a gift from God. And as such, God's people ought to enjoy it, and they ought to find satisfaction in it. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 says, I know that there is nothing better for men to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. Life is a gift from God. And he says we ought to, we ought to embrace the life that God, has, that God has given us. If you read through this book, you'll notice on several occasions, the teacher talks about eating and drinking. And when he talks about those things, he's not talking about them in the fatalistic sense of let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's how people will sometimes interpret it when they read Ecclesiastes. But he's actually using that imagery in regards to our finding joy and satisfaction in life. Eating and drinking are good things. Let us eat and drink. And, 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 and that's a way of, of embracing the good life that God has given us. Ecclesiastes 5.18, Then I realize that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. So we see that theme here also. There's a frustrating and a perplexing aspect to life, but there's also a part that we need, to, we need to embrace and we need to enjoy and we need to thank God for. A third theme is that of fearing God. We see that at the very end of the book, right? Chapter 12, verse 13, this is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. But it's a theme throughout. Listen to chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. The teacher says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Don't be quick with your mouth. Don't be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool, when there are many words, when you make a vow to God, don't delay in fulfilling it. He's got no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Don't protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. The writer of Ecclesiastes, throughout this book, he encourages us to fear God and to keep His commandments, again, even amidst the frustrating and perplexing nature of life. So this is all sort of going on at the same time. It's kind of like you wonder, sort of, the guy almost seems schizophrenic, actually, sometimes when you're reading it. You know, he's, he's fatalistic, and then he's saying, trust God, and then he's, he's um, embraced life, and you're like, what? You know, all of the above. Well, there's a fourth theme here. Actually, there's, 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 maybe there's, I could, probably could have touched on other themes. The theme of the fleeting nature of life is, is common as well, right? Life is, life is quick. Life is short. You see that in here. But the one I want to focus on with you is this. 
And to me, this is the teacher's great obstacle as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes. This is the thing that troubles the teacher the most. It's the thing, really, that causes him to declare that life is meaningless. And what it is, is the inevitability and finality of the grave. Okay, that, that's sort of the note that gets hit again and again. The inevitability and the finality of the grave. For him, for the teacher, death is what we might call the great equalizer, okay? It's really the thing that calls everything else into question. This is what he says in, in chapter 1, verse 11. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Maybe it's even seen more clearly in chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. As you read Ecclesiastes, you'll see that this is, this is the ultimate problem the teacher has. The grave. The grave. All die. Rich and poor alike, die. Wise and foolish alike, die. Young and old alike, die. All die. And not only do they die, but they all are forgotten. So what's the meaning of life? Is there meaning to life in light of that ominous final grave? That seems to be what haunts the teacher. And this leads us to the Christ focus. How do we see the Lord Jesus in the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, in light of what I just said, this is a book, friends, that really longs for a resurrection. It longs for a resurrection. The teacher has no concept, no understanding really of a resurrection. His problem, again, is the, is the finality of the grave. Once you die, that's it, it seems. No matter what you were in this world, no matter what you had in this world, no matter what you obtained in this world, once you die, that's it. You're gone. And very soon you'll be forgotten. Of course, I think we'd all agree that under these circumstances, life is meaningless. Indeed, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the grave is the end... It all means nothing. But something remarkable has happened, hasn't it, since the teacher penned these words. We just celebrated it. A baby was born to a young virgin girl in Bethlehem. He was given the name Jesus, and he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. At about the age of 30, he began his public ministry, telling the people that the kingdom of God was at hand, and therefore they ought to repent and believe the good news. His message was accompanied by miracles. He healed people. He drove out demons. He calmed storms. He walked on water. He turned a little bit of food into a lot of food. He even raised the dead on a couple of occasions. 
Yet as we know, he also got on the wrong side of the wrong people as he trampled over their man-made traditions and exposed the hypocrisy in their hearts. And so they put him to death, even death on a cross. From there he was taken down, he was laid in a tomb, and a stone was rolled in front of that tomb to ensure that no one would take his body. At that point it seems, doesn't it? It seems that the writer of Ecclesiastes was on to something. For the most righteous man who ever lived died the death of a criminal and a fool. Indeed, it seemed on that Saturday like life might just be meaningless as the same grave awaits us all. But we know that's not the end of the story. We know what happened on the next day. The stone was rolled away. Our Lord Jesus rose again from the dead. And as the catechism so wonderfully reminds us, His resurrection is a guarantee of the believer's own resurrection. It turns out, death isn't as final as it once seemed. It turns out that, that, that for God's people, there is actually more to life than the grave. There's a glorious future through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's a contemporary application? We'll close here. Let me give you two. First, it seems to me that in light of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have all the more reason to heed the teacher's counsel and to embrace every day of our lives as a gift from God, even as we go on fearing Him and keeping His commandments. Will life be frustrating sometimes? Oh yeah, you know that. Oh yeah. But because of Christ's resurrection from the dead, we know that even our frustrations are not meaningless. Even our frustrations are not in vain. For through them, God is conforming us into the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn of many brothers. The second application then is this. The book of Ecclesiastes calls us to stop looking for the ring outside when we lost it inside. It calls us to look for meaning and for purpose in life in the right place. Okay, it is not found under the sun. It is not found in this world. The things of this world, right? Money, power, standing, they're fleeting. And they can't save any one of us from the grave. Only the Lord Jesus can. And it's only in Him and through Him that any one of us will find meaning and purpose. It's only in Him and through Him that any one of us will find the life that is truly worth living. So I say to you, stop looking today for meaning and purpose where it can't be found. Stop looking in it in the things of this world. But look for it in the one who's called the way, the truth, and the life, who died on the cross for your sins, and who lives again, so that you might too. Let's pray together. Our great and awesome God, we thank you and we praise you that life is worth the living because he lives. 
Father, help us to believe that and help us to live in light of the resurrection hope afforded to us through Jesus, your Son. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand for the parting blessing and then we'll sing our closing song together. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May He turn His face toward you, grant you His peace. Amen. 2.13, 2.13, because He lives. That's in the blue book. How many verses are in it, Carlene? Three. I think we can do all three. We'll do all three.